Hello and welcome to The Hive Podcast, a series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and with the living world. Join me, Natalina Hai, and some very special guests as we explore the pressing question of how we can support one another to envision and create a more flourishing future for all. For more information on today's episode and guest, please visit natalinahigh.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And for additional books and resources, check out natalinahigh.com forward slash resources. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Today, I speak with Dr. Ruth Kochan, author of the recently published book, The Success Factor, a fascinating read that explores how we might understand and learn from the mindsets and skill sets of peak performers, from Nobel Prize winners and astronauts to Olympic champions and political changemakers. The Chief Learning Officer and Assistant Professor of Education in Anesthesiology and former Assistant Dean of Mentoring and Executive Director of the Mentoring Academy at Weill Cornell Medicine, Ruth has made her name in management thinking and was hailed by the journal Nature and Columbia University as an expert in mentorship and leadership development. Selected as one of 30 people worldwide to be named to the Thinkers 50 radar list in 2021, Ruth was also a semi-finalist for the Forbes 50 over 50 list and recently won the Thinkers 50 Distinguished Achievement Radar Award given to a thinker with the potential to change the world of theory and practice. A regular contributor to Forbes, Psychology Today and Harvard Business Review, Ruth's work has also been widely published in academic journals and her take on what pro-social success can look like in a rapidly changing world is what drew me to speak with her on the show today. Ruth, it's a real pleasure to be talking with you today. How are you doing? I am so excited to be here with you, my friend. And you are right in the midst of book launch craziness. How's it it going so far? It's swimmingly. It's fabulous. I am so excited. I'll tell you what I'm really excited about. The emails and DMs that I am getting from people about how the book has inspired them. (laughs) And that's as an author, that's what it's all about, right? Yeah, especially when people need, we all need inspiration, and your book goes straight to the heart of how we can flourish. So let's start there, because I think that's that's something that really you're passionate about, is how do we look at what other people are doing, how they're approaching their lives in order to gain lessons and then empower ourselves to make change. So the question that I want to ask you is, in your mind, with the work that you've been focusing on, how do you think we can empower people to envision and create a more flourishing future? I really think it's about understanding what our calling is, mm-hmm. not just our passion, right? People say, oh, you find your passion, you'll never work a day in your life. That, it's really your calling, what you were put on this earth to do. And once you take into that, it's the reason you wake up in the morning. It's the reason you can't quiet your mind at night. It's the reason everyone else is burning out and you're just revving up. That's <laughs> flourishing. That is flourishing. And so, and I'm going to circle back to this later, but it feels like a good point just to seed the thought now, especially because, like you say, people talk about purpose and they talk about meaning in these grand sweeping ways. 
And one of the things that really struck me in your book, which I found very reassured by, was the fact that sometimes the people that we see when they reach that point of recognition, whether it's by peers in their fields or on a much grander stage in the Olympics, whatever it might be, we don't see all of the failure and the heartache and the restless nights and the decades maybe of search that goes into finding or reconnecting with this sense of calling. So what might you say to people who are listening to this thinking, okay, fine, we're talking about purpose and calling. How do I begin? Apart from obviously your book, which you're going to put a link to, but <laughs> what might be a good question to start with, to start this inquiry? So it's actually, you know, what you're saying is so true. It's the high achievers didn't wake up one morning and say, I'm going to be a Nobel Prize winning scientist, <laughs> or I am going to be the greatest Olympian of all time. This was really a journey of discovery, which is why I loved my interviews with them so much. They didn't even realize the, the insights they were having. But that was my job, right, to interview these people and find the commonalities. And one of them was that intrinsic motivation. They tapped into it. And one of the things that I do with people when I work with them and, and when I give keynotes is that I actually take them through a passion audit mm -hmm. to figure what it is that they are good at, what it is that you might be good at but don't enjoy doing, mm -hmm. what are you <laughs> not good at, and what would you do for free if you could? And as soon as we're able to differentiate, every time I've done this with people, they quickly realize that just because you're good at something doesn't mean you actually enjoy it. Oh, yeah. I'm into that. And just because you enjoyed it in the past doesn't mean you're getting fulfillment from it now. And the problem and the reason we're seeing such a burnout in people is because they have been trying old tools that worked for them in the past, even though circumstances have changed, mm. interests have changed. So it's time to reexamine and reimagine what it is that really is our intrinsic motivation and then work to fulfill it. Mm. So let's talk a little bit more about intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. So I think one of the things that is often intention is if we're thinking about what we engage in for most of our time to make money and the work that we do, we might find joy in the social side of things. We might find joy for a time in specific projects. But I speak to a lot of people who don't place such an emphasis on the intrinsic side of it, of showing up and doing work that they're truly engaged in that gives them a sense of flourishing and fulfillment. And it can be really easy to get into that trap of thinking, well, how can I possibly focus on something which is going to be joyful and meaningful to me? Obviously, these things still will have their struggles. But engage in that kind of work if people are worried about making the jump, taking a pay cut, taking a risk, what are some of the ways that we can approach that? Well, first of all, it, uh, the research on this is crystal clear. Mm -hmm. If you're doing things for what we call the extrinsic motivators, the diplomas, awards, rewards, bonuses, promotion, prizes, gold medals, it's, that's when other people are judging you. And when other people are judging you, that is extremely difficult to maintain and sustain. Mm -hmm. And what happens is those people start to burn out or fail out. So we really need to tap into our intrinsic motivation. And one of the things that I've learned from the high achievers is that they don't worry about failure. They don't worry about success, right? Some people are afraid of failure. Some people are afraid of success. 
the high achievers fear not trying hmm. more than they fear failing. Hmm. So I'll say that again. Fear not trying more than you fear failing. And they said to me, as long as nobody dies, there's something that we can learn from this opportunity. And it wasn't for nothing. Hmm. So it's about taking strategic risks, calculated risks, that even if you don't hit the mark, you will learn something from the process. So you don't have to go all in at once. Hmm. Remember, the path to success is long. And what, whenever I interview the extreme high achievers, I say to them, I'm really not interested in what's on your Wikipedia page. I am <laughs> not interested in what I can Google about you. That's the tip of the iceberg. I'm interested in what's below the waterline, what it took to get there. And that is the long path filled with strategic risk, calculated chances that they have taken. And there's so much to learn from all of those near misses and misses and failures and hurdles and challenges. That's where true growth is. And so speaking about growth, I know that one of the areas that you're exploring at the moment is around post-traumatic growth, which seems very fitting given where we are yes. at this point in history. I just want to throw it wide open and say, maybe what is it about this very broad, very rich area that is most attracting your attention right now? And maybe why? Yeah, and it's interesting because I loved that you wrote about that in your book. Um, and, you know, as soon as I read that in your book, I said, oh, that's where we are right now, where people are just faced with this new reality, right? When things get so bad, I mean so bad, that you never want to taste that bitterness again. You never want to feel that loss again. You never want to get that feeling of rejection and isolation and loss again. And in order to not feel that trauma, because it is trauma for so many people who lost jobs, who lost loved ones, they will do everything they can to not feel that again. One of the people who I interviewed for my book, The Success Factor, is Apollo Anton Ono, one of the most decorated Winter Olympians. And his career went from the lowest of lows to the highest of highs. He would lose terribly, and then he would win, and lose terribly, and then win. And he said the losses were his fuel. Because he did not want to feel that bitterness. He did not want to feel that rejection ever again. Mm -hmm. And that's when he would double down. And sometimes he needed to feel that in order to modify his training and succeed. That's so interesting, isn't it? When I was reading your book and I was reading about how so many of these people, one of the, the biggest components of their success, at least that I can implicitly take from the book, is this sense of grit and determination, and you speaking earlier about the road to success being long, that really resonates. But then also I was thinking about how the, the sense of bitterness of failure, when I think about what kind of set me off to do the work that I do now, it wasn't anything that was specifically um, laid out or planned out in advance. It's because I felt like I'd failed in music. I'd been doing it for well, many, many years, wasn't getting where I wanted, and was so crestfallen with the industry and the lack of, for me, it felt like lack of progress, that it was absolute heartbreak. It was almost as bad as one of the worst relationship breakups, mm. if you like. And it, But it's this sense of, and it, it can create this fuel, this sense of, right, well, 
I'll show you. I'll do things on my own terms. And one of the things I find really interesting in your book is that you talk about this quality in adult learners being self-directed study. People who go, what is it that I want to hold on to, to dig into, to investigate? So maybe let's talk a little bit about that, about some of the mindsets and approaches that you outline in your book, including obviously adult learning and where we can go from there and shore ourselves up for success. That's right. So uh, I'll just uh, set the stage here for this. This book is not just a book on success, not just my anecdotal experiences. This is based on years and years of research with some of the most successful people of our generations, Nobel Prize winners and astronauts and Olympic champions and NBA champions. And I really used my background and training in adult learning and leadership to underscore the ideas that you are hearing about in the story. So it's based on the best adult learning theories, and it's just brought to life with stories of household names of people who you know and have seen on TV or heard about or read about. And then it really brings action points so that you can take it and implement it in your own life and really turn things from one day, one day I'm going to do this, <laughs> and turn one day and make today day one. Thinking about that, one of the things that I found particularly useful in your book, in The Success Factor, was, I mean, there was many, many things, but one of them that I liked because it was so explicit and so clear, which was very helpful to me, especially when we're thinking about these theories and bringing these principles in academia to people so they can actually use them, which I'm also passionate about, was this GROW model. Do you want to talk us through a little bit what that is and why it's useful? So it's used in coaching for those listening who don't know about it, but tell us a little bit about what it is and why it's so handy. Yes. So the GROW model is really used in coaching. It really helps you frame the ideas of what you want to do. What is your goal? What is the reality that we're dealing with right now? What are the opportunities available to you or the obstacles? Um, and where do you want to go next, right? What is next? What is the next action steps? And it really frames things, right? So that you have an idea of where you are, what you need to deal with in terms of the challenges, where is an area of growth for you, of learning, of opportunity, and what is the action step you need to take, this is really the, the 101 of coaching, mm -hmm. but it's really just framed in such a way so that when you see things, you actually see it for the opportunity that exists instead of always just the challenge. And high achievers, I think, are subconsciously constantly doing this, right? Mm -hmm. They always have a goal in mind. They're always looking at what is my reality right now? What do I need to do? How do I turn no's into not yet, right? Looking at the obstacles, looking at the opportunities. And there's always a next step. And there's always a plan B, right? So they are not just focused on reality. So now let's think of our current situation in the pandemic. Some people were just focused on the pandemic and everything that's going wrong. While there's other people who said, this is my reality, how do I work within this framework? Mm. Think of the Olympians training their whole lives for the Olympics, and then it's postponed for mm. a year because of the pandemic. Well, their goal is to get to the Olympics. The reality is we've got a pandemic. 
I can't go to the Olympics. I can't go to the gym. I can't meet with my trainer. Well, where's the opportunity here? What do I need to do? What's next? And these are the people who found a way to work out at home and Zoom with their trainer and find other ways that they can do things. And frankly, if they can do it, we can do it too. (laughs) And so let's talk a little bit about what success means and what high achievement looks like. So I think one of the things that can be very daunting when we're thinking about ways in which to live is how to meet competing needs and desires. And one of the things that we throughout your book, which I found very moving, was that a lot of the people, once they have gotten to a place where they've worked to gain traction, to gain reputation or a foundation beneath them, they then work in the service of others. They mentor others. They help to show Maybe this is possible, maybe that's possible. So the female scientist that paved the way for the young upstart who's been told, well, there's no point you trying, and then she sees role models that she can aspire to and work from. And so I'm wondering, when we're thinking about the climate crisis, the pandemic, the economic instability, all these intractable problems, based in the work that you do, what are some of the things that you can suggest for us to draw upon to help us orient ourselves towards solving or contribute towards solving some of these issues in our own small way. Because I think success has to be cooperative at some level. No, it's not just about competition. And in fact, you talk about this so much with the mentorship structures, with the friendship structures, with people deciding to leave the room where they're the smartest person and go and seek out people to be with. So all of these gems that you write about, how can we use these for people who are listening and thinking, well, I don't aspire to be an athlete, but I do aspire to achieve success in a way that I am fulfilled, I can model that for others, and I can help to solve some of the world's difficult questions in whatever small way. Yeah. So, And this is why I think it's so important to understand that even if you don't want to be a Nobel Prize winning scientist or an astronaut or an Olympian, It's not about copying their habits. It's really about emulating their mindsets. And we can customize those mindsets to our own lives. So, for example, one of the things that the high achievers do routinely, which we can do in our own lives to control these other things, is that they work diligently to control what they can control. And if it's not in their control, they don't worry about it because that is a variable that they cannot manipulate. So they don't focus their energy on that. Instead, they focus instead on exactly what is in their control. And when the variables change, they readjust. That's the first thing. The other thing is when they are dealing with a challenge, and we all have challenges in our lives, even even the astronauts and Olympians, (laughs) right? They have challenges too, I promise. And what's interesting is that when they are faced with challenges, when they are told no, they don't, they don't hear the no with a period. They convert that no into not yet. What is the strategy I haven't thought of yet in order to convince them to say yes? So unless it's an issue of personal safety, right, in our bodies, no to them always means not yet. And that is how a 20-something-year-old grad student got the U.S. government to change the way they define depression and diagnose depression in nursing homes, impacting millions of people, because she was told no, and she pushed back in her mind to say, 
not yet. What is the strategy I haven't thought of yet? Mm. Now, the other thing that all of these high achievers do is that they like to get ideas from other people because they know that they are limited in their ideas. But what they do is they seek out knowledge and they seek out information from others and they look for the gaps in people's understanding. Mm. And that is something that we can do as well. So we always hear about Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and Mark Cuban. They're notorious for reading three to eight hours a day. It's not reading that made them billionaires. It's finding all these ideas and seeing the gaps that other people aren't seeing yet and converting that information into something useful, possibly in a new industry. Mm. And that's something we can all do. And one of the ways they do that is to make sure that they are always the least interesting person in the room. Because if they're only going to hang out with other people who are just like them, they're going to be talking about the same old thing. Do you think the astronauts are constantly hanging out with other astronauts? No. They have plenty of that. But they also want to learn from from athletes and from business people and scientists and all of these other people. Because the more they learn, the more they can innovate. And in order to be innovative, we need to see where there are gaps in other people's understanding, including our own. And so actually, just just on that point, I think also in a time of sort of slightly restricted movement, although hopefully now we're starting to emerge from this, this can also mean listening to your favorite suite of podcasts that can be completely right. different from one another or listening to a show that you would never turn on. on the. No, I don't know if anyone turns on radios anymore. I know my parents do, <laughs> but whatever it might be or different points of view on documentaries. Um, and I think this is one of the reasons why it's so interesting to listen to people who generate a lot of animosity across different sides, as well as people with whom you have a kinship, because it means that there is something there to rub up against. And where there's that edge, there's that growth. That's so true. So one of the other things, is more sort of a burning question from my side that I would absolutely love to put to you. One of the things that you write about in the book is that high achievers have a laser focus on one goal. And it doesn't need to be a reductive thing like, I want to be the top athlete because I want to get X number of medals. That's quite extrinsic. But I'm wondering if it can be something deeper, like I want to change the world in such a way as to leave it better than when I left it. So then I'm thinking about people like Buckminster Fuller or Yagdish Chandra Bose or maybe Helen Keller or Leonardo da Vinci. But what I find is that all these people, some of the things they have in common is the fact that they are diverse in what they seek out, which connects with what you're saying about diverse sources of information, points of knowledge, but they're also polymaths. So my kind of devil's question to you really is, how do you make sense of the kind of success that polymaths have? What are the similarities and the differences between high achievers who have like octopus tentacles and different things versus the individuals who really focus on that singular path? What are your thoughts on that? So it's so interesting because almost all of them started out doing one thing and then transitioned because oh. they were good at many things, mm -hmm. but then they found a calling for one. So for example, I mentioned Apollo Anton Ono, the, the winter Olympian. Mm -hmm. He is a decorated, like most decorated, speed skater, short track speed skating. Before he ever laced a pair of skates, he was actually a state-ranked swimmer. Very interesting. So he was really good at swimming, 
but he didn't <laughs> enjoy it. He didn't enjoy it the way he liked short track speed skating. Another one is um, Scott Parazinski, the astronaut. Well, before he was an astronaut, he was actually a physician. That's extraordinary. He was a physician and a scientist. And he actually trained in luge to make it to the Olympics. <laughs> and he became a luge coach. So he was good at all these things, right? They make us look lazy, yeah. right? An astronaut, <laughs> physician, Olympic coach, and then an astronaut. And now he's in the Astronaut Hall of Fame because it took them a while to figure out what it is they love doing. And as I said, with that passion audit, you can be good at something, but not necessarily love it. And just because you loved it at one point doesn't mean you always love it. And things change as we have transitions in our lives. And knowing to always reevaluate is what's most important. So I recently interviewed Devin Harris. Mm -hmm. Devin Harris was an original member of the Jamaican bobsledding team. So if you ever saw the movie Cool Runnings, it was based on yeah, Devin I love and his that. Teammates. I love that show. Well, the film it was one of my favorites growing up. So he was actually a runner, right? That's what Jamaica is known for their track stars, and they're known specifically for their sprinters. And he was middle distance. They never had anyone in the Winter Olympics, right? They're a tropical island, <laughs> but he made it, and not only that, he made it for three Olympics. Wow. And I talked to him. I said. Was it hard to give it up? And I asked this of every Olympian, and they say, no, it was time. Hmm. I have no regrets. I left hmm. it all out there. But it's time to move on to something else. And they always tell me, because I asked them, I said, can you show me your Olympic medals? And only two of them had it on display, right? Hmm. One had it in the nightstand. One had it in a box under the bed. One had it in a safe. <laughs> one had it in a brown paper bag in the sock drawer, right? <laughs> So they said to me, it's, that was just a chapter in my life. It's not my entire story. Mm -hmm. It was a goal, not the goal. So I think it's knowing how to readjust, knowing that you like things at a certain time. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it just played out its course, and now you want to try something new. And so I'm thinking here also about the ways in which our culture seems to fetishize youth. Yeah. And how, as that may be, the expectation that the adventuring and the seeking and the career building happens in one's 20s, let's say, in kind of many of Western countries, is quite deeply ingrained. And I think it can be quite tricky to recognize when the mountain that you've climbed up is no longer where you wish to be standing. And actually, maybe the mountain over that way is, is perhaps more calling you. And so I wonder what are some of the ways in which, and maybe you can weave in your story because you have a fascinating story about the ways in which you switched into this work or journeyed into this work. From your personal experience, what are some of the things or the inflection points that made you realize, yes, this is possible um, at whatever chapter of life people may be at, but for you particularly to then pursue this in a deep and meaningful way? So, yeah, you're, you're talking to somebody who went back to school for her doctorate at the age of 43 while working full-time and raising my family. And then in a pandemic, wrote a book. Yeah, wow. And I think the, the reason that all of that happened was I loved doing what I was doing. 
I was running a MD-PhD program. I was working with the most brilliant minds. And people were leaving that career path, what we call the leaky pipeline. Mm-hmm. And everyone was talking about it. Articles were written about it. Books were written about it. Every conference had keynotes on it. And I was part of those conversations, but I found them very unfulfilling. Hmm. That was a glass half empty, and I'm more of a glass half full. And mm-hmm. I thought that we were looking at the problem from the wrong side. I thought our solution was in the most successful people. And how can we get more of those people? Mm-hmm. Because I saw it was possible just by looking at the people that I was surrounded by. And as soon as I saw it, I said, I I need to really take a deep dive into this. And that's why I went back to school to study this. And and then once I did it, look, if you get your doctorate while working full time, it's sort of, (laughs) you go all in and it drains you. Mm -hmm. And I thought I was done with research, but I got the bug. (laughs) I got that intrinsic motivation and I couldn't let it go. And that's why I kept interviewing more and more people from different industries. And once I started making those connections, the the gaps in the understanding that I was Mm. talking about, once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it. Mm. And Mm. one of the things you learn in science is that when when you find something, especially something that could help the greater good, you are not allowed to keep it to yourself. It is your duty, it is your responsibility to share it with others. And that's what I did. So I started writing some articles and wrote the book, The Success Factor, about it because the goal is to really elevate the bar of success, to create a culture where people want to achieve, where excellence has, has a new baseline. And I think we can do it. I really think that we can do it. And I'm hoping the success factor is a blueprint for it. And so thinking about the success factor and all of the people whose stories you included to really bring to life all these principles, were there any surprises that you really didn't anticipate that kind of came to light during your research? I mean, this is obviously you were writing the book after you'd spent a lot of time deep diving in this area. So it may be that the answer is no, but Yeah, was there anything that shocked you or something that you learned that you thought, ah, that's something that people won't expect? There's actually um, quite a few things. The first is, whenever I told each one of these people, I said, look, you came up on my ranking as a high achiever. I'd love to interview you to understand your path to success. And repeatedly, I would hear, I am? Yeah. And I kept thinking... You won the Nobel Prize. So if you are not a high achiever, what does that say about the rest of us? So it was really their idea. They are so humble, which I loved so much. And they were so willing to talk about their failures openly, which the rest of us are not so willing to do. And they knew I was going to publish this. They signed off on it. But they said, that is where you learn. If you can understand what went wrong and what went right and how to reproduce it, that is how you will learn. That was the first thing that I was really fascinated about. The second part was really despite all of their accomplishments, I was really impressed with how much they continuously learn. They are so open to learning and learning through informal means. So the reading of the books, the articles, the podcasts, such as this one, right? I know some of them are going to be listening to it because this is what they do. This is how they get information. This is how they are looking for gaps. 
And it's that in the LinkedIn Lives and the webinars <laughs> and surrounding themselves with a team of mentors, just finding ways to learn something new. I was so fascinated by that. And your passion really shows through. <laughs> so one of the things that I wanted to draw out, one of the quotes that I loved in your book was, make your mark to leave this world better than you found it. And because this season is about envisioning how to you know, come up with a future that's going to be more flourishing, that is going to be better than we found it, uh, and, and empowering people to have skills or to dare to change how they're doing things, how they're thinking about things. I do want to ask, when we think of success and the models of success that we perhaps orient ourselves towards, often we can think about people who are maybe narcissistic leaders that will be in the mix, people who are quite sort of dominant in terms of power over. And uh, it can be quite disheartening to say, okay, well, there are models of success that are perhaps more harmful. So thinking about those successful people that are driven by pro-social, pro-environmental goals, how can we incentivize perhaps more of this kind of benevolent, universal sort of approach to living and flourishing where you're seeking excellence, but you're also doing it for the benefit of others? How do we incentivize that as a model of success? So one of the things with high achievers is that their incentive is intrinsic. It comes from within. And part of my definition of success, because the definition changes based on who you ask, mm. but I looked for people who created a paradigm shift in the way we do things or think about things or process things, right? That was the first part. They are recognized for their work but also they are bringing other people up with them as they start to ascend. And they do that in different ways, possibly mentoring people one-on-one, -on -one, such as Dr. Bob Lefkowitz, the Nobel Prize winner in chemistry, or they run full programs, full mentoring programs, where they're reaching hundreds, if not thousands of people, such as Dr. Charlie Camarda, the astronaut who runs the Epic Education Foundation. So everyone had their own way of doing it, but it was part of their DNA to give back. It was what Dr. Debbie Heiser calls generativity. This is what they were put on this earth to do. It wasn't just about them. And that's why they are so comfortable sharing the spotlight. So whenever they understand and they love when the spotlight goes on somebody else, they understand, especially if it's one of their mentees, that that is a sign of success for them, that they are now raising the next generation. They are creating that ripple effect. And all the astronauts have assured me that the world is big enough for the light to shed on all of us. There's room for all of us. So it's not about one person hogging the light, it's about one person sharing the light. And Dr. Bob Lefkowitz, who won that Nobel Prize in 2012 in chemistry, he actually shared that Nobel Prize with one of his former mentees. Oh. And he said that was the best part of the Nobel, mm. is being able to do that. Isn't that great? It is. And I think it's this kind of thing, like hearing the stories of people who are living in that way, that, that it, it gives us a possibility to think, okay, well, what might that look like for me? And also how we can give back no matter where we are in that journey. Um, when we're thinking about qualities to look for in people around us that we can draw inspiration from that make, maybe can be informal or formal mentors. 
What are some of the qualities that you suggest we look for when we're, when we're seeking people to help guide us and challenge us? Yeah, I think, first of all, we need interesting people who will push us out of our comfort zone because that is when true learning occurs. But you also want people who can mentor in a way that you process information best. So if you're the kind of person like me who needs to talk through challenges in order to fully understand them and see where the gaps are and see where there's room for change, if your mentor is constantly going to just throw articles at you and say, read this, read this, read this, figure it out on your own, that's not going to be a very good relationship. So the relationship is really just that. It's a give and take. What can you learn? What can you offer? Who is this interesting person? Can they mentor you in a way that you learn best? Do they have time? Do they have the bandwidth? Are they willing to amplify your work, introduce you to people in their network who can actually help you? Or are they going to keep you all to themselves? Those are some of the questions that you should be asking yourself. Mm. And in terms of reaching out, because I think at the moment, with so many people having spent these last two years at home or meeting very few people, where might we start to reach out to people? I, I think as a Brit, I would feel quite rude to say, oh, I really like your work and your thinking. Would you mentor me? Like, it just There's also a cultural thing that I'm acutely aware of being present. But what might you suggest in terms of reaching out? Right. Well, one of the first things is never ask somebody to be your mentor. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Rule 101. Because as soon as you ask them to be your mentor, you're asking them to take on another obligation. Yeah. And everyone's too busy right now. No one has time. But if you ask them for their perspective on something, especially if you've, got, if you've gotten to know them a little bit, they will give you your, their perspective, right? Now, how can you get to know people? Everyone wants to meet the person on the stage, the keynote speaker. And that's fabulous. By all means, connect with them. But you also want to connect with the other audience members because they are there for the same reason you are. They have the same interests you do. Mm. So start connecting with them. Connect on social media. Tell them what they said that really resonated with you and why. Same thing with the speaker. What did they say? Why did it resonate with you? If after a while you have read something or you've seen something that really um, dovetails on something that they commented on, share it with them. So you want to engage with their content, not so much that you're stalking them, but enough that they'll start to recognize your name. So start doing that a little bit and see see where it takes you. And you'll see that you are going to find mentors, but don't ever ask them to be your mentor. That comes afterwards, right? Because you have to prove your worth. You have to prove that you're worth investing in. You want to be able to shine and show them that you can help. It's a relationship. It's not a transaction. That is such useful, practical and strategic advice. I'm going to think about that and... Uh... <laughs> plan. <laughs> so there's a few more questions that I have for you, but I think I'm going to start into these now. So one of the things that I like to invite people to answer is whether there is a story or a fairy tale or a myth or a poem or a real life example that you've come across in recent years that really captures your imagination or ignites you. Yeah, well, it's a quote. And I actually have it on a post-it note right on my computer. Oh, wonderful. Because every time I want to try and break a barrier, every time I want to try something new, and I know I'm going to be met with resistance. I just know it, right? Because people don't like change. <laughs> yeah. 
I look at this quote, and, and I wish I knew who actually said it, um, but it's, they whispered to her, you cannot withstand the storm. She whispered back, I am the storm. Oh, I just got goosebumps. <laughs> That's quite mythical. I mean, you're roaming into the, the imaginal realm there. I love that. Why you scares me goosebumps? It's funny because a lot of the people that I interview on, on this podcast have connection with the mythic imagination, the stories, folklore. And that for me just really sounds that. It sounds like that. Uh-huh. That's my Wonder Woman. Uh, you know, I just need a theme song and I'm ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> need to get you a little cheeky outfit as well. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> a little cape. And your little um, cape. <laughs> so then... When we're thinking about mentors, what person, maybe recently or that stands out in your mind, you you write about several amazing people in your book who really championed you in your career at different stages. But if you're going to give one example of someone who's really inspired you or influenced you that you think people should know about, maybe the work that they're doing or how they bring themselves to the task, um, who would that person be? There's many, many, um, but I, I do want to give light to Dr. Bert Shapiro. When I was running an MD-PhD program, he ran all MD-PhD programs at the National Institutes of Health. He had a portfolio of about 50 of them. And basically, he controlled all of our money. Oh, wow. And he took me under his wing. In fact, when I applied for the doctoral program, he wrote my letter, one of my letters of recommendation. And when I was deciding on what I wanted to study, I really thought I was going to compare classes, right, and think, mm. try to predict who would be successful. And he looked at me and he said, you have the opportunity to look at this, look at this question, look at this problem from an angle no one has ever tried to look at before. You are charting new territory do something important, not just interesting. Hmm. And by just telling me that one line, he never told me what to do. He never told me what not to do. Right? He's a true mentor. He never tried to convert me into a miniature version of him. He just told me to do something that's important, not just interesting. Hmm. Because if it's interesting, it's interesting to you, and it could be a hobby. But if it's important... It'll have an impact. And he was pushing me to do something important without telling me what that was. Mm. And from a little institutional study, with those words, I converted it to a national study of the most successful physician scientists of our generation. And that got the ball rolling for all my research and all of the years since. That one line made such a difference, Dr. Bert Shapiro. So he really planted the seed for you. He really did. And I tell him every time. And I want to tell you in 2018, 2019, 2019, I think, um, he retired. He retired from the National Institutes of Health several years earlier. And then at the National Association, um, there's actually an award named after him for Mm. people who change the landscape of physician scientist training. And it's called the Dr. Bert I. Shapiro Physician Scientist Award. And in 2019, I won that award. Oh, congratulations. I didn't know about that. That one's hidden, (laughs) Silent. And who was sitting next to me? Dr. Bert I. Shapiro. Oh, 
Oh, that's really beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) And very poignant. Very poignant. (laughs) It was beautiful. (laughs) So to end on two final questions, what tools or practices have been invaluable to you as you've embarked upon either the book writing or the research, whatever it might be that, that you found to be absolutely vital that you think other people could be served? by knowing about? So a few things. One is the research would not have been possible without my network. I have an incredible, incredible network. And all of these people who I interviewed were because of relationships that I've developed over the years. And they were all through referrals. So develop relationships with people, not because you're looking at what you can get from them one day, but just develop those relationships. And if you prove yourself to be someone who they know, like, and trust, they will help you when you need it most. That's the first thing. The second thing is that, and this I learned from the high achievers because I always said I was patient zero, (laughs) is figure out what your peak hours are. What are your peak hours? Hmm. When are you most focused? And then leverage those hours. So for me, those are morning hours. Now, I work full time, so this book had to be written on the weekends. And I had to actually write it during the mornings because that is when I'm focused. I can get more written by 10, 11 o'clock in the morning than I can the rest of the day. Mm. So it was important that I not do passive tasks in the morning. I'm not responding to emails. I'm not going on Zooms. I'm not going to the grocery Mm. store. Focused on the writing in the morning. The other stuff when I don't need to be as sharp, I can go get the milk and eggs. That's such useful information. With the work that you do and focusing on how we can overcome, I guess, systemic challenges, looking at mentors, looking at pass forward, persevering, educating yourself in informal ways, all of these different systems of change, but also looking at how we can connect with what we really intrinsically care about, what we value. All of the work that you do, you must have come across, obviously, I mean, you write about this in the book, failures, reasons where people have turned directions, maybe they've experienced trauma, they've experienced hardship or bitterness. And all of us in our own lives face difficult experiences. So when you're thinking about some of the bigger challenges we might face and how we might rise to meet them, how do you orient yourself towards hope? When things get overwhelming, when they feel too tough, when you're doing these mountains of research or book writing, you're juggling all of these things. You know, we're only human. There's only so many hours in the day. How do you orient yourself towards hope on difficult days? Look, I give myself deadlines because I know, and as you know, when writing a book, you need to produce certain things by a certain time. Mm -hmm. And I was very strict with those deadlines. In order to meet those deadlines, I had to write a certain number of words every weekend. But what I quickly learned how to do was actually create a buffer. I needed to create an extra weekend worth of time in case a crisis happens. I get writer's block. Mm. I'm exhausted. I have to take care of Mm. something or someone. And I think creating those buffers gives us grace and does not make it feel like we are working on a nine, 10 month sprint. Mm. It is a marathon where we are pacing ourselves, where we have rest stops along (laughs) the way. And I think that's the only way to do it. We have to give ourselves those rest stops. And then finally, where do people get to find out about the success factor, about your work, about your column, which I'd like to plug? Tell us all of the places people can find out more about what you do. 
Thank you. Yes, I write in Forbes and Psychology Today and Nature and Harvard Business Review, and the book is called The Success Factor. All of that can be found on my website, ruthgotian.com, all over the social media is just my name, and anywhere in the world where you might want to find the book, if you just go to my website, ruthgotian.com slash book, you will find places all over the world where you can find it. And I hope you enjoy the success factor. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. If you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and review as it helps to reach new ears. And for more information, you can visit natalinahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And you can also reach out to me on Twitter and LinkedIn at Natalie Nahai. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.